if we are going to seriously, I mean, seriously, I'm using air commas, embrace real digital transformation, like a big lunge forward, we are now at the time in history to do it. This is the strategy behind with Adam Cox, Yuta Tobias Mortlock, and Matt Wilkinson. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind the going virtual. What is really needed to get the most out of your operations and your staff as we move increasingly more online? Gents and uh, any ladies that might be listening to us in future, welcome to the next episode in The Strategy Behind. Today, we're not going native, we're going virtual. We're exploring what it's about and what does it mean to have a new normal of businesses, organizations, institutions that are now more virtual than ever before. What we're going to be exploring are what does this mean for business model innovation? What does this mean for opportunities for people at work? What does this mean for the human element? What are the opportunities are there? And what might be the losses that we might be suffering? Um, we're going to be discussing trade-offs, alternative perspectives. We're going to probe each other about what we're forgetting and what we're missing and let me kick off by putting it to you. What does it mean for you? We're going virtual. So there's a lot to discuss here, <laughs> an awful lot. From, I, I think I'll start from the organizational perspective. And what is the problem that we're actually trying to solve? In the last, uh, in the last, yeah, six weeks, eight weeks, a conversation I'm hearing come out of boardrooms of larger organizations is one around we obviously need good productivity post-pandemic. There is an expectation to get back on the horse, to play catch-up, and, uh, and make things happen. And there's a couple of different ways that I'm seeing leaders think about this, but I'm seeing a very disturbing trend run through some of these conversations. And that trend is one around, is this going to be a jobless recovery? The conversations that at least I'm adhere to and others, you know, my colleagues and peers uh, very much around, you mentioned, Yuta, the business model innovation. So if we look historically over the last 10 years, you know, the multi-sided platforms. I know um, uh, Harvard Business Press came out with a book a good couple of years ago called Matchmakers. It's a really, really good book. And it looks at your Airbnbs and your Ubers and restaurant bookings and hairdressers and how everyone is moving to you know a platform-based go-to-market strategy and what does that mean and how do you architect them. And obviously, as those models have evolved, people are coming up with smarter applications of them. 
the last couple of years, I've seen a really nice organization in the States called uh, Cataland. And what they do is that they go down the path, they've got a platform, they use AI, and they're going into large organizations and going to their leaders and to their talent management and their HR departments and go, look, you have a strategy, you need to execute it, you have capability gaps to execute it. We have a bench of talent, you know, kind of selling consultants sort of a thing, but it's not consultants, they're more so kind of staff on the spot. And this is nice because it helps people execute better and it's got that multi-sided platform sort of a thing, kind of a gig economy sort of a vibe to it, which is great. And that's a good application of technology. However, the conversations I'm now starting to hear is what if we could take it further? What if we could actually use platforms like this and models like this and start to replace our human resource departments with these things. And what does it actually mean? What if all of our staff were self-employed? What does it mean to our balance sheet? What does it mean to the tacit knowledge in the organization that is now being disseminated? You can't put it on a SharePoint and expect everyone to read everything about what's going on. Does it mean more managers and PMOs? Like, you know, there's all these challenges around how far is too far given where we are now in relation to business model innovation. That's kind of Conversation number one. And conversation number two that I'm hearing is much more in relation to operational transformation. Now, we've been hearing the conversations about AI and robotics and automation for a decade now. However, the executives that at least I'm working with in different parts of the world, there is this request now for strategists such as myself, and even if these people aren't in seat, Executives are looking for futurists to either be advisors to the board, ELT chair, senior decision makers in the organization, or to have a C-level futurist around. Because if we can start to think about where this goes and we partner those digital futurists, strategic futurists kind of people with purpose-built AI, you know, we can get some really interesting intelligence that can spur quite radical innovation and automation. So people are now starting to think, what do I need to future-proof myself from these disasters and pandemics and crises that we find ourselves in? And the takeaway I'm seeing is that both of these conversations are moving away from traditional talent. And what does that mean to the human and the organization? So let me just pull up there because that's, they're the two big conversations, but there's a lot in both of those. But I, I, I'd love to hear thoughts from both of you on this. Yeah. So, um, what you've said really resonates with me, Adam. Um, I've been for the last year now a member of the world's first full service, um, cloud based marketing agency. It's an organization called Up There Everywhere. Uh, because it's based in the cloud. Uh, the organization has about 200 people spread all over the globe. I think the only continent that we don't have colleagues on is Antarctica. Um, but I'm regularly working with people in Australia, in both sides of the, you know, in the US, um, in China, uh, and of course in Europe as well. And the, the, the business model is really, really unique. And it talks to what you were talking about earlier, um, a little Adam, where, Essentially, uh, the founder, a gentleman called Julian Stubbs, created this model called e-ployment. E-ployment? E-ployment, yeah. So it's a halfway between being a freelancer and an employee. 
So you're a member of a network. You, um, every, every member runs their own business. So there are no employees within the agency at all. Um, everybody has their own business, but yet we self, we self aggregate into teams to service client needs. So I'll work as a marketing strategist, often as an account director to, to help build a vision for a, for an organization. And then I will work with, uh, science writers, uh, creatives, art directors, digital, you know, specialists that are great at doing LinkedIn advertising or SEO, building websites. And we'll then merge all of those talents together to, to, to self-select a team that A, wants to work together, um, and B, to, to deliver for the client. So it's very much based on a kind of a re-envisaging the way that you deliver, um, resource to a, you know, to a project, to a, you know, to an outcome. Uh, it's completely different in from sort of what I've experienced in the past where, you know, as an employee, you join a team. You have very little say over who you work with or how you work with. You're stuck in those, those structures, those ain't, you know, those, those archaic monoliths where you may like 50 or 60% of the people, 30% that you can, you know, you can get along with. And then the others you really rather wish you didn't have to engage with at all. And they're the ones you probably have to deal with most of the time just because that's the way life rolls out. That I've really been enjoying part of that agency and we've, I've seen some amazing results that have happened and we'll be, uh, you know, we'll be working on, on great projects for really exciting clients all over the world. And I think that's a, a really amazing business model. What's then really interesting about it is that, um, it kind of covers the, the sort of the business model side of things. And I think that there's going to be a shift towards, for certain people at least, that are comfortable being, um, comfortable having, a, accepting a certain amount of risk to their future. So those people that are willing to be a bit more entrepreneurial, but also want the, a bit more community, want to feel part of a team, want to, want to do things that are bigger than they can do just on their own. Just like the three of us are here on our own, you know, we've self-aggregated into a group to discuss things. Uh, it's that sort of model. Um, and, and reality was, was we each had to invite each other to be part of this group and, you know, great to be here. So thank you. Um, the, the other, the other sort of side of that is then how do you work with people that are based in Australia? And, and so we found that being part of this network, we're actually already working digitally we have been for a long time of course we would go in and speak to clients face to face and run workshops and so there's been a little bit of a shift you you know re-implementing the tools that we've got to how do we you know how do a sudden do you do a face-to-face -face workshop virtually it can be done but what changes do you need to make how long can you how long can people be on a, a zoom call without getting that sort of conference call fatigue but it's, there's a lot of those tools in place. So people are already using, um, yeah, you know, net messaging, messaging software, project management mm -hmm. tools. So the toolbar of my, of my Mac is just full of them, you know, from everything from, from WhatsApp, Skype, Telegram, 
you know, various email clients, Skype, Microsoft Teams, Basecamp, Slack, Zoom that we're on now. Uh, you, know, you, you name it. We're working across those different, uh, those different tools. And as long as you've got an app that you can, that you can actually access to it, life becomes really quite easy. Uh, as long as you know which tool you're using. And then there are things around how you communicate with people. And that probably ends up moving into something that I've seen where the organization that's been working best in this sort of distributed teams manner, which is the organization automatic. Now they're the company that developed WordPress, which of, and about 60 or 70% of the web is basically run on technologies developed by this company. Uh, and they don't have an office. They've got about 1200 people based, or I think it's 70 countries they're based in. And the, the, their, their founder, Matt Mullenweg is just, you know, it's just a phenomenal guy. And he's kind of come up with a sort of five levels of how you can view distributed teams. Um, and it's a really, really interesting model. So you've got that first set that's, that he likes to, that first level that he likes to call kind of non-deliberative action where people just, they're able to go and work from home for a little bit of time. But reality is, is that you still need to go into the office. If you're not going into the office, you miss, miss out on the meetings, on the information. And, and so while you can get, get away from the office to do a bit of work, you really need to come into the office to, to be productive. You then have those organizations that are trying to take some of those steps where they try to recreate the office online. So you'll start having lots of conference calls and meetings where you've got 10 plus people on a call. Uh, and you end up in those very uncomfortable scenarios where actually people feel that they're wasting time. And I think a lot of organizations in this pandemic have fallen into that trap because we're hearing about people with, um, with, with, with conference call fatigue. That they're, yeah, Google has even announced an extra day's holiday to give people some respite from working from home. And working from home was supposed to be the cure from commuting. So what are we doing wrong? And I think that's where people are then sort of starting to look at this at these, these different levels. So then you move to a third level where you start adapting to the medium. So you start using all these different tools. So rather than creating a document and having a local copy and then emailing it around you'll be working on a on a shared document in the cloud somewhere so that you can create together you know working uh, working together on the same piece at the same time and really co-create rather than just have a have something that you're you're flipping between different people and then you start moving up that the, the next level where you get to the point where yeah, if i've got a task force for somebody to do you'll get into this point where you don't need to be working at the same time with people and you get to this level of asynchronous uh, communication. And that's something that I think that most organizations really struggle to get to. Uh, it takes a lot of discipline to be able to, for me to say in a, with a request, hi, Adam, I've got, I've got this. Could you review it by this date, please? If that's not, could you let me know, please? And then say the same thing to you, to yourself, Yutik. Could you then review this by this date, please, so that I can make the changes in time to do this? We have to be really, we have to have the tools in place to enable that so that we can look at our, how do we 
how do we prioritize tasks and our attention to, to all of the different pieces of information that are coming in? And then how do we make sure that we're saying, yes, I can meet, match that or not. Yes, I can deliver or not. And it takes a level of, I think honesty and authenticity in the communications and trust between people to be able to just say, can I ping you this and trust that it's, that if you say, yes, you're going to do it, I can leave it behind. And on the de- you know, by the time you've said you're going to deliver, it's back with me. That's, I think, kind of where you end up. And then, of course, Matt Mullenweg sort of put this fifth level that he calls Nirvana, which he says that uh, essentially it's where actually, and we're not talking about the uh, uh, one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're talking about essentially the case where a, a distributed virtual team can work better than a team that, that is in, in one place together. And I think there are times where it can work, where you can follow the sun and you can actually deliver far more successfully than um, than you can face-to-face. But again, it's the, it definitely depends on the type of work you're doing and the type of people you're working with. Mm. I, uh, Matt, thank you. I, uh, I've jotted down a, a number of things. Um, the one thing I wanted to straight away pick up, because Adam was nodding as well as, as you were saying, you know, when you have this, I find it fascinating that you're talking about asynchronous working and that that is, for me, intuitively right as a model that more and more organizations will have to aspire to, and it'll pose challenges for us. You were saying trust, right? You were saying, can I trust Adam to get it done? And can I trust that you're just going to get it done um, after Adam in the secret, like ducks in line? And I think on top of that, it requires that we are more open and integrated and actually um, we're giving up having our individual control or we're giving up this centralized control notion. So we have to be almost more like a logistical machine where if, you know, something goes wrong in your part of the chain, I have to be open to pick it up or say you, Matt, or then Adam, if, you know, if you're delivering it sooner or later, I actually have to be available to then slot in, not just the trust element of can Yuta actually get her work done if I don't see that she's doing it, but we have to be almost a bit more, um, the, the image that I have in my mind is we actually have to be a collective mind. We mm. cannot be individual cogs in a machine that is centrally controlled, Monday till Friday, nine till six, whatever. We have to continuously watch for what the other ones are doing and be open and willing to move where the flock is going. Collective mindfulness is a bit like that. But it requires that I give up something, and that is my individual control and my routine of wanting to do my part of the work my way without looking up beyond the rim of my plate. Adam, you had something as well. Yeah, it's um, I know I've mentioned it in a prior episode, but Rachel Botsman, uh, her work, she does a lot of work in digital trust and she's got TED Talks and she's done work with the School of Life and she's a lecturer at Oxford and she's buzzing around doing some really, really interesting things looking at the relationship of, or looking at how can you foster trust in a digital age? What does that actually mean to trust someone? 
and I've kind of got that ringing in one ear and on the other side I've got the last 15 years of kind of corporate and social mandate, which is we need less screen time in our lives. And I'm looking at this, let's all go virtual. And if the virtual leap that, you know, we're all looking to potentially make now, is it a leap a bit too far? If I think about, you know, particularly in the time of lockdown, we, you know, if, if a workplace has virtual happy hour and everyone like they dress up and they wear a hat and they have a cocktail and they all have up and virtual and it's a virtual happy hour. Great. Um, no matter whatever way you paint it, it's still a meeting. Um, it's still a thing in the calendar. I still click the button and whether I'm at a virtual happy hour or a meeting with an executive or going on a date or talking to my parents or whatever it happens to be, this medium of going through this lens here and out is universally the portal through. And I know, Matt, you just mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the fatigue, you know, virtual fatigue is something that I'm hearing now more of. How much more can we take? And what is the subsequent knock-on effect of that from a people pers- person perspective? Uh, I saw a paper, I don't know, in the last month or so, and they were saying that as organizations and people spend more and more time, uh, you know, screen time going virtual, uh, what does this actually mean to their virtual resilience? And I'm like, oh, this is new. Yeah, so by virtual resilience, there's a couple of things they pointed to. People have a tendency to look at themselves more often than they look at other people when they're looking at the screen. When they're not resilient virtually. Yeah, or well, yeah, because what happened is that you look at yourself when you speak and you go, oh, yeah, I look good. And therefore, you always have this, yeah, or not. Um, <laughs> you know, there's Sorry, a- Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm doing pretty well. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, derailer. That's fine. <laughs> but, but to the point, you actually play right into the point, which is this performance element. Right. You know, if we're sitting around a table and we're having this conversation in person, I'll get up and go to the water cooler. Do you want a coffee? And everything will be more organic. Whereas now there is performance. There is this fatigue where I always, always must be, Presenting and even more so in a virtual happy hour, even more so on a date. Like you have to push your best foot forward. And this can be very draining. You burn a lot of calories. You know, uh, you know, you are, you are, you, you're, you're a performance now. And we're being asked to do more of it and lead more of our lives through this and how resilient and how, how much are we going to expect of people to do this. And the fact that Google come along and say, look, have a break from working from home does not surprise me because that is a response to precisely this kind of research that I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. But Yuta, yeah, your face lit up mm-hmm. a moment isn't ago. That, what do you think isn't that interesting? Um, you know, this, I find it fascinating that you talk about performance in this sense because performance is much more than just, you know, performance management, checking whether my task completion is actually on track. It's also the performative aspect of what I do and the added filter of self-presentation that's added when I speak publicly, when I am a public figure, even if I'm just in a meeting, sitting around an oval-shaped desk with people 
that have different status in the hierarchy. And I think you're absolutely right that that level of self-scrutiny and self-presentation is added with that medium that I'm now speaking through that I don't have when I sit around a table with peers where at least I feel less performative because I can't physically see myself. Although let's face it, or let's just ask the question, is it actually less or more real that we're all performing all the time? And maybe right now we are moving towards it being more salient and more obvious in our lives. And maybe it's actually a good thing that we're realizing that we're constantly performing we're constantly semi-conscious of how we're coming across. We're constantly more or less, you know, dialed up or dialed down, having a monitor about how am I doing? Not only how do I look in front of this webcam right now, but I even have that when I'm sitting in the pub with you and we're not officially trying to impress each other. Maybe it's just an act of waking up to have more awareness of what's going on and maybe we're going to become more skilled at dealing with this additional filter. Matt, you had something. So I think it's, so, so for me, it's really interesting. And I'd almost like to take it back to when we, you know, when the, when the photo, photo was, you know, invented and the camera was invented. So mm. we will be around friends. We're very uh, friends, colleagues, other people. And we're very comfortable in our own skin. We're very comfortable in the, in the world moving around us and us being animated. And then you'll see so many people that have got amazing smiles, me being one of them, uh, when I'm, when I'm actually not trying. And then you ask me to smile for a, for a photograph and it comes out like I'm grinning horrifically or I'm going to eat somebody or, or whatever it is. Uh, and you feel really self-conscious posing for a photograph. The rise of social media and people taking selfies, we're so much more used to seeing ourselves on screen. And now we're being asked to see ourselves on screen all the time. You know, I'm conscious that I'm sat at a swivel chair and I, that it moves slightly. I'm conscious about my background and I can see that what's behind me now. Um, and you become very, I think it's very much like you're posing constantly for a photograph, knowing that somebody can take a screenshot. Somebody could be recording it like we are now. And this could go down in prospect, you know, you know, as a as a marker of who you are and what you're like. And I think that is very fatiguing for people. And I think that's where it comes from. I had the most amazing conversation with one of my with one of my uh, my friends um, who's an amazing uh, art director. And, you know, these these calls led each other into each other's homes, offices, wherever we are. They're quite, I think they're quite invasive at times when you've got a screen on, depending on where you are. Um, and you know, we'll just phone each other without the video because it's so tiring being on camera all the time. Mm -hmm. We know where we are. We're friends. We don't need to, to see each other constantly. And it's really interesting to, to almost see that at one point you would only do a video share if you liked somebody. Otherwise you would pick up the telephone. And now it's almost gone to the other way that, okay, we're comfortable enough that I don't have to see that you're paying attention to me. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's really interesting. I, I think it's a really interesting mental shift that. 
and I sort of wonder, part of me, and there's a fantastic, um, science fiction novel by Isaac Asimov, Under the Naked Sun, and it's part of the iRobot series. Uh, and one of the, I won't bore you with the plot, but, but one of the, the, the futures that he predicted was that in space people would be, uh, you know, they'd have their own, you know, they don't have their own large amounts of land and homes. And actually they'd get to the point where they wouldn't interact with each other physically. They would have a virtual presence. And so they would have holograms that they would, when they chose to interact, they could appear as a hologram with other people and they would be very lifelike. So while you couldn't touch somebody, they, you could kind of be in the same room as them. And all of these people were, were germaphobes because they were fearful of, you know, of, of anybody coming mm. from another planet particularly, but they were fearful of what the other people around them could, could be bringing in. And this just isn't like a coronavirus. This could be any kind of illness. And I wonder if that's the natural progression here is that, you know, you talk about it, Adam, you mentioned sort of these virtual happy hours. The yeah. issue with them is, is that, you can't have a small meeting. You can't flip from one group to one group and have a conversation. You're forced to have a group mandated conversation. You can't go out, split off into your little sub conversations and, yeah. and actually have the real, the real interaction that we actually so crave. There's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Adam, go. Yeah, I've got things backing up in my brain now. Yeah. Um, the, the, the one that kind of really leapt forward is, uh, you know, you speak about this book, you speak about the author who proposes this alternative future, or, you know, this specific, specific future. When you were talking about sci-fi, I'm not a big sci-fi buff, but um, I remember as a child watching Blade Runner and seeing someone make a phone call and you could actually see the face of the other person on the other side. And the first thing that went through my head as a seven-year-old or however old I was, probably too young to be watching Blade Runner, um, was that sucks because how can I pretend that I'm sick at home from school when my teacher calls <laughs> me and then can see what I'm doing? <laughs> I thought that was a horrible idea. And here we are X years later and it's, and, and it's now a part of the daily grind. But it's that futuristic, and the reason why I bring up that story is about the futurist and the role of the futurist, and at least what I'm hearing from leaders. And they're like, we, if we are going to seriously, you know, I mean, seriously, I'm using air commas, embrace real digital transformation, like a big lunge forward, we are now at the time in history to do it. And we want those futurists to advise us and paint those longer-term pictures for us in the spirit of productivity, returning to growth, all the wonderful things. And at least some of the conversations I've been exposed to, I've actually kind of questioned the motives as to why this is the case, because it kind of goes back to the purpose of the organization. I'm a firm believer, for better or worse, in the phrase, the company will always act in its own best interest. The company will always act in its own best interest. Now, what that best interest is depends on its purpose. Is it like a traditional maximized shareholder value or is it, you know, doing good in the world or whatever it happens to be? It'll always do that. 
at the end of the day, if it's got good leadership. And what I'm seeing is a lot of these conversations about we want futurists to see where this is going to go is primarily driven by dropping costs, increasing productivity, and future-proofing the organization. Because if I can create a future-proofed organization, the next time something shows up like this, I'm going to sail right through. Mm. And it's, 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 you know, this is open-heart surgery on how organizations work. And, you know, C-level executives are asking for futurists to come to the table. Like, this is amazing. And as a strategist, this is incredibly exciting. But where it leads is somewhat concerning. And this is where when I look at going virtual as the topic here, I kind of raise an eyebrow. I'm going, going virtual, great, but in service of what? That's the high level. And then the next level down is the much more interpersonal level, which is, you know, what does this mean to how we interact? Again, it's the conversation we're having, the always on, the performance, the the fatigue, um, and what is going to take its place. I was, again, reading a different piece of literature a couple of weeks ago, and it was talking about the return of the letter. They're like, oh, everyone should plug in their fax machines. And to your point, Matt, uh, you know, if you want to have a meeting, have a phone call, like turn the screen off. Um, because, you know, we actually find that people are much more present in the conversation when you remove the visual, which mm. I think is fascinating, or at least the digital visual. And it depends if you're a people person like I am, and I enjoy p- talking to people in the room. I've adapted well to this format. I know a lot of people who have struggled with it, and they find it very taxing. So what does that mean to what's actually happening in the person, Yuta? I would love to yeah, pick up exactly there, Adam. Thank you. Um, what's that about? What is the thing that's taxing for us as we're going virtual and as we are? We're, we're effectively at the heart of the open heart surgery that you're talking about, but that's been rumbling for a decade or more. And the open heart surgery that we have a real opportunity to help shift the direction of the dialogue is about this additional judgment that is what makes people awkward when they are now more on display, more in performance view, more in almost forced to not escape into, as Matt, you're saying, having little small side group conversations. So it's, I would argue that this is a real opportunity to reframe how we live with that judgment of each other and how we live with the judgment of ourselves. Because if I'm listening to you, Matt, um, I also feel that, by the way, that because I now have these virtual meetings, there's no way that I can escape and I can have a little side chat with you or with Adam to, to, to just almost relieve the pressure of feeling maybe too exposed, of not feeling connected with somebody you know, enough. But so the, connect, the sense of connection doesn't depend on the virtual medium, but the sense of almost, you know, needing to feel safe and live with the judgment is the thing that I need to reframe myself on. And before, Adam, uh, you pick up, I want to remind you of the research that Kelly McDonnell uh, has done on how our beliefs about stress changes our relationship with stress. So, Could we imagine a future as we're now breaking up the old normal and we're getting to the new normal of really tackling our relationship with this constant judgment that my children are exposed to, that I'm exposed to, that, you know, if I have a, you know, a selfie 
I don't even know what this means, by the way. Um, but that I'm, I have this additional layer of judgment. And can we reframe that and go back into real connection, even if it's a virtual team? And how do we get there? How do we advise organizations to do away with the negative aspect of this increasingly evaluative, judgmental world that has added to my concern for how I come across more so than ever before? And that's added another filter that's detracting me from getting the job done and being highly performing. Adam? Yeah, and there's a culture evolves and to your point around you know we're having a conversation in a room and there's not the ability to break out there is the ability to break out i see it every day it's everyone jumping on instant messenger talking about how shit this meeting is and you and these things you, you lose control of the narrative and everyone at the table tell me about it Matt and I have been talking while you were speaking. I know, I know. It's just like, well, he shut up. It's, but you're absolutely right. It's this thing where, you know, it's people will find their own outlet to try and create the connection they crave. Now, if it's on a corporate network that's monitored, not optimal. If everyone pulls out their phone and goes, jumps on signal and starts talking about the meeting they're in, which is usually how these things go, it becomes a, you know, suddenly the, the purpose as to why we're all here changes. Mm-hmm. And you can, it, it's difficult to address that when you don't know what's happening. If, if I don't know that the two of you are talking about me when I'm talking, it can never be addressed. And it goes back to a couple of episodes ago. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. Now it is mentionable, but not to me. You have created a divide in this virtual environment. And if, and if organizations and everyone's pushing towards the virtual, how much of the narrative, how much of the value are we actually going to lose by chasing efficiency, are we not making ourselves less efficient by doing this? Yeah, I, I would like to pick up, uh, jump in. Uh, sorry, Matt, if you would, um, <laughs> because this is super important to to talk about what essentially do we need in organisations, right? What do we need as workers, as people, CEOs, and floor sweepers in organisations? We need to feel connected, and that means like being seen. And that means being held by the people around us. We're social animals, right? We need to have a community, right? But we also need to make progress. We need to have the autonomy to sweep the floor in the way that we choose to sweep the floor. Or if I'm a CEO, I need to have the autonomy, enough of autonomy, not have my board of directors breathing or my shareholders breathing down my neck to actually do what I feel I need to be doing so I feel satisfied with myself. And we need to do something that's bigger than ourselves. So that's about the purpose of why I'm here. And it all is about interconnectivity. And the way in which we get to have real conversations about this is in the wild, we do this by spending time with each other. In the wild, in the old normal, we did this by having coffee with each other. Adam, remember how we used to have coffee together, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we got to know each other. But so we got to know what was under the iceberg of 
you know, me agreeing to, you know, you, you asking me a question. At the surface, you see human behavior. At the, and beneath it, you see certainty over the purpose that we're here for. Um, how much autonomy are you giving me or how much autonomy am I allowing you to give? Um, how much connection do I give you when you need it? And how much do you allow me to back off when I don't want to be seen right now? The way we're trialing this right now in this mindfulness course in the Navy is we're, we're asking people to have conversations that tune their emotional intelligence and their authenticity about what is really going on. Adam, I'm being a bit long-winded, but I'm getting back to what you've just said. So if I don't know that the two of you are having a side conversation behind my back, or if I get a sense that there is a side conversation going on, the, the only way, 21st century way to address this is to say authentically, hey, something is going on. I get a sense that we're not quite on track anymore. Um, asking a question that is maybe a risky question about, hey, how is this for you? right now how is this meeting going for you and so that's speaking to authenticity and emotional intelligence and emotional awareness of creating real purpose real connection real autonomy where i trust you and that's maybe the opportunity for us to when we're going virtual let's have real connections and let's accelerate real connections independent of the medium that we have We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind. You know, if I look at what's, if we look at what's missing from the workplace, um, you know, we're obviously missing the water cooler moments, the going for coffee, the being surrounded by other people. So we'll have our little team that's discussing something, but there are other people still working towards a bigger purpose as well. Typically in an organization, you're all trying to move in somewhat similar directions, usually at least, uh, but you're missing that surround of everybody else doing other things, working in aid of other things. You know, you might have the R&D team, you might have customer services, uh, whoever, the, the other the other parts of the organization, you've got sales, marketing, you know, operations. You've got that input. And so you'll be having a meeting, maybe you booked a meeting room, but you've got other things going on around you. So there's a little bit more just interest other than our lives, and the news that we're fed. And then I think the other thing that we miss is that as we walk into those meetings, we get to choose who we sit next to. We almost get to designate our alignment with people by how do we how do we organize ourselves organize ourselves around a table? Where do we position ourselves? You know, are we positioning ourselves in a point of power at a table? Are we putting ourselves out of the way. And we get to choose that. On a virtual call like this, there are three slots. 
Mm. You know, the more people could turn up, there are more of them. At a certain point, you have more screens with more and more people on them. And you can't see everybody, you know, you can't see everybody that's in attendance. But you still feel that you're being watched by everybody. And I think that we're not able to to kind of find, uh, we're not able to find anonymity in a crowd. And I think no matter how much of an extrovert you are, we're all looking to at sometimes to be part of part of a team that's responsible for something rather than an individual that's responsible for something. And I think the the virtual world at the moment puts people at uh, in the place where they're believe, feeling that they have to be performance. You know that, that their performance is that they have to deliver exactly what they're looking to do, and. I, frankly, I do my best creation with other people. You know, very often it's about creating an idea. It's about making an intuitive leap or two, having this, that, and other, riffing off other people, being part of something. It's not about me sitting down and just creating something on my own. I, and I think that's where we have to find ways to to create those safe spaces where we can create groups of people, groups of team, you know, to, to you know to make people feel that they are part of something rather than just being on you know on stage all the time could i bring in here that uh, i'm riffing off you matt and i'm trying to build the how-to onto this so we need to create safe spaces and what i'd like to add to this is one size does not fit all so it's absolutely clear that you and i don't always need to connect and you and I don't always need to feel safe. You and I don't always need to be reassured. But you and I want to have the freedom to say what we need to say in the moment that we need something. So I'd say the how-to to create a real, I want to say a real organization, by the way, even though isn't it ironic that right now we're talking about going virtual because my assertion listening to the two of you is that the organizations that I've been working with and in have not yet really become 21st century real organizations where we have authentic discussions about what does Matt need right now, what is right for Adam right now, and we are flexible, accepting, and in sync with each other that we are Mm -hmm. allowing the individual and the team to need what it needs to need. How to? by training ourselves to become more comfortable with saying real things that are going on to change the culture of what is permissible to be speaking about, but also to train ourselves to be interested in finding out what's going on for the other people who are in our call so that I have the chance to have a real conversation independent of if this is virtual or not. Absolutely. I think the interesting thing that I've seen Matt Mullenweg say from um, Automatic is that his he always saw his job, or maybe he's a visionary anyway because of creating a distributed company, but the, the his ro- he sees his role as creating the space in which people can go look for the answers to those needs. It's not his job to meet those needs for everybody, it's just his job to put in place a uh, the environment in which people can self-serve their own needs. 
And we can't do, you know, normally in a, in a, in an office space, we can go and say, Hey, can we, do you want to go and grab coffee quickly? Do you want to do this? You can find a, a bit of time. Someone to say, Oh no, I've just got to finish this, but give me five minutes and then we'll go. Mm. But if they're, or you can see they're on the phone, but if you're remote in a little study somewhere and you pick up the phone and they don't answer, well, do you feel that you can call them back? How do you, how do you reach out to people that are busy? How do you find those, those, you know, those real moments of connection? Mm. Um, mm. And do businesses, you know, do businesses really care about that? Just Not yet. You've but, just hit it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Adam. It's, it's, the company will always act in its own best interest. There is the, the driver of it acting in its own best interest is not necessarily about optimizing how people interact. A horrible broad brush comment. And there are obviously organizations that will go, that's rubbish. And I agree with them. It's a broad brush comment. What is driving this is productivity, return to growth, leapfrogging competitors. You know, it, it, it's, it's the future of the organization at stake here. And I don't think the um, level of abstract thinking has sunken down enough mm. into the operationalization of what this looks like between humans, which is what we're touching on. And that's why we have this disparity in this conversation to be like, well, have the organizations worked it out? Uh, probably not, because they're chasing after a different objective at this moment in time. And while just listening to both of you speak, the, the the line that's going through my head is from a virtual perspective, just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. And there is a tendency, you know, particularly within IT, particularly within IT, if there's any if there's any industry on earth that is driven more by fashion than fashion, it's tech. Um, uh, it, if it's a sexy new thing, they'll go after you end up with new legacy system on old legacy system. And someone does a portfolio review in a decade and they're just like, how the hell did we get here? Cause you know, our back end is a car crash and they're like, let's do a digital transformation. And then it all starts again. What we're seeing now is the danger of that accelerating. I am not privy to maybe one or two organizations who are actually thinking about this from going virtual from not from a profitability productivity of people as an output and what they produce, but looking at it from, is this right for the organization, for the team? And when they go, it's too hard, the AI robotics automation thing comes fraud. They start looking for these futurists and they're like, well, let's jump to the future now. It might take us five years, but if it sets us up for the next 25, then, hey, this is the right price to pay as long as we can, you know, kind of keep sailing forward while we implement these massive changes. So there's this tension. How far do we push this boat out? And the business, the company will always act in its own best interest. They want to push it out a long way because the circumstances are right for the boat to be pushed. Mm. How many people are going to fall out of the boat is another question. Yeah. That's where – yeah. Sorry, Matt. Yeah. 
I was going to say, and I, I think it has really interesting implications for uh, certain certain industries in particular. So the corporate office space, I, I think that has a huge uh, question mark over how viable is that going forward? Do we really need big offices? Do we really need to bring people together? I think the answer is showing that no, but we need to be more caring about people as we move away from that. But not only is that a cost center, the cost that you can look to reduce or remove as an organization, but you can sell the concept of working from home as a benefit because then employees don't have to travel to the office. They don't have to pay for commuting. There may be a, a small charge for, for providing IT and, you know, some facilities to make sure that health and safety are up to date, but they'd have to deliver those anyway. But what's really interesting is that you then look at trying to push the the cost of space, of working space onto the employee as well. And one of my biggest fears about this whole thing, especially living in the UK where we have a housing crisis, where we don't have huge houses, is that all of a sudden we're going to push house prices up even more that actually we could make it harder and harder for people to actually find places that are big enough for them to live. So we've been building smaller places for a while. All of a sudden, we're going to need to have, you know, move from a a three-bedroom house to a four- or a five-bedroom house so that we can just have enough space to have a couple that's working and that maybe can have some children and a visitor. You look at the space requirements we're going to need for every household to do that. And all of a sudden you're looking at re, you know, reimagining the entirety of countries. And so there's, there is going to be a balance before we can have an entire going virtual for everyone. And it won't be right for everybody, of course. It won't be right for every organization. So I think it's more likely that we'll have a temporary shift for some day, some more days working remotely and some more days working in the office. But that's going to have to be really carefully managed and it won't, it won't really move us up that, that sort of hierarchy of digital, of, of virtual distributed teams. We'll stay very close to the bottom of it for most organizations. So, Yuta, would it not be a reasonable assertion? that smart organizations who are looking at going virtual really need to crack the code in relation to preparing the team to go virtual more so than looking at the technology to go virtual. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair assertion? I think so too. And I, I, what rings in my head right now is that this is about knowledge and information. And knowledge management if we consider the literature of the last 30 year with, you know, even Peter Senge and talking fifth discipline and, you know, the organization that's a good organization is a learning organization that manages knowledge and information. Well, that's actually people management. So that's management of people's perceptions of themselves and each other, people's motivation of you know what's right. And, and people's sense of purpose much more than skills management or, you know, human resources, sending people on a training course. So the people aspect is much more about the relationships and, you know, the relationship that I have with myself, the relationship I have with you, the relationship I have with myself when I talk to you. And 
that is the stuff of helping people have conversations and awareness of themselves and of others that's not traditionally trained in organizations. But when you see it working well, everybody goes, huh, that's great. That's a great team. That's a great organization that I'm settling into. Because when it happens serendipitously, you know what it feels like to have a great people dynamic between each other. And I would think, or I would argue, that once you have great people dynamics, you have good knowledge, good information, and good technology or innovation management. Mm. Mm. I think that also there is a chance for the inverse, for that to be true, the the inverse and opposite also must be true. Um, I was on a call at home doing my call, finish the call, go have some dinner, partner at the table. You didn't speak very nicely to the person you were speaking with on that call. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. No context. Work has now now work has now left the the line has been blurred, and I'm like, this is fascinating. Like, if if we are on a call and we are using technology to work, and people around us are losing all of the context of what's happening, even if they don't say anything, they then will start to form judgments and opinions yeah. that are not necessarily a true reflective of ourselves in either that relationship or that friendship or or whatever it happens to be. So if you have good work relationships and people observe these outside of the earphones and the screen, then okay, you know, Matt's a good guy. If Matt is screaming at me because I haven't paid an invoice and I'm dragging him out for 120 days, he will close his computer and people in his house might think otherwise, might think he's a prick because the context is lost. This is the danger of pushing everything out the danger of you know how do we how do we ensure that we can put some form of parameter up around when we are working we are working and you know sometimes you know in managerial roles and in moments of crisis or whatever like people need to crunch and break backs we've all seen it hmm. how do we manage that perception running away from us it's almost the equivalent of the internal chat but now there's a house internal chat that is going through my family. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. How do we even balance that? Is it a circumstantial to that we need to kind of open up the communication or do we put up boundaries? I'm not too sure how we even need to think about a fully virtual work environment where both positive and negative things are going to bleed out into the rest of rest of our lives. All I have is 100 years of, of <clears throat> uh, people... Helping people cope with difficulty to that's all that's the only thing I have in my toolbox. And so I will sound like almost a broken record. But what the first image that came to my mind when you were speaking, Adam, was prisoner's dilemma. That you know, when we're now moving to a world where I have partial information about what's going on for you, and you have partial information about what I've been dealing with, because you only hear my perspective of the story, you don't hear the other side. So what typically happens for people is that trust goes down and people become more suspicious about the motives of why I've said what I've said and why, how, why I've said how I've said, um, how I said what I've said. Does that make sense? 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So you you're starting to kind of create, uh, try to make sense of stuff that you don't fully understand about why I'm acting in the way I'm acting or why I'm speaking in the way I'm speaking. And so prisoner's dilemma is when, because we're both operating on incomplete information, typically it spirals out. And uh, when people don't share information and don't share the motivations behind what they're doing, the solutions that get created are suboptimal. That's like classic behavioral economics, right? What, what are the tools that we have? Adam, you've asked a psychologist, and the only tool in my box is 100 years of helping people share and speak to what's going on for them because that's what we believe in psychology and therapy and people dynamics is the one tool that changes our relationship with what is going on. So sharing and explaining and sense-making is the way to create certainty where there's incomplete, asymmetric, yeah, yeah, un- uncertainty. Okay. And that means communication training. That means yeah. authentic communication training. Matt, I'm throwing the ball over to you. I say, but the, the, the world of sort of asymmetric information and the impact of that was there whether or not we were at home or, or in the office. We don't know if our bosses has just been into, uh, let's just say the boss has gone in to see the CEO or the CEO has gone in to see the investors and they're, you know, they're getting an absolute kicking for it. They come out and they bark at everybody else. We don't know. We might take that personally. We might be able to distance ourselves from the input. We might be able to say, hey, well, he's just had a meeting with there. I guess that didn't go well. That was just a, you know, that was just a release valve. Let's forget it and move on. I think the most important thing in all of this is not being judgmental and it's not to, it's not to actually say to jump to a conclusion about, Hey, Adam, you weren't very nice to that person on the phone. You didn't speak as nicely as you could have done. Uh, It's probably more. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at this either. It's something I would Mm. aspire to, but it's, it's more along the lines of just then asking the question and allowing somebody to say, Hey, sounded like you had a difficult call. And allowing somebody to, again, it's the, the way that you approach it. And of course, when we are confined and locked down into, uh, in, without the natural escapes that we'd have, the, the normal places we go, we don't have the ways of kind of taking off, uh, the work mask, if you will, and putting on the home mask because those lines are getting blurred. We have to become more authentic for sure. But it's then about realizing that we're seeing the pressures of those, on those of around us as well mm. more than we would do normally. And so, you know, when my wife Charlotte is, uh, you know, has had a long day at home, uh, it's a different conversation we'll end up having now than when she'd had 15 minutes to or 15, 20 minutes to drive to commute home because there was a release in that. And so that we, yeah. yeah. And I used to love having a drive home. Because I had time to just switch off. And people would ask me how my day was. And I'd be like, yeah, it was okay. Because I've used that time to to listen to a podcast, listen to an audiobook, yeah. And I've just let it go. Yeah. And actually, I've just kind of, I haven't forgotten what I've learned in the day. But actually, I've just moved on and tried to live in, yeah. be mindful of living in the moment. Okay, I've done my day. I'm now home. And I'm going to enjoy this time. And I think that's, I think that's where 
I'm going to throw the ball straight back to you to, because actually I think this is all about mindfulness. Mm. And, and mindfulness as the definition of what we need in workplaces is I become aware of what, is, what the data is in the room and then I adjust my response so that it's appropriate to the data, the information that's real, that's in the here and now. That's what mindfulness in, um, in the context of making good decisions and actually performing well appropriately with the situation is all about. And I'm glad you're throwing the ball back to me because the how-to, right? We're going to get practical here now, right? The how-to of not being judgmental and of not hanging on to this lingering sense of uncertainty or judgment is not to say, I will not be judgmental. I will, you know, I will uh, meditate myself to non-judgmentality because that's not physically possible. But the how-to of toning down judgment is to speak to it, to acknowledge it. There's a brilliant mm. term, um, a well-researched topic of labeling emotions. So, and when people cannot label emotions, it's called alexithemia. So many people are not skilled in actually articulating what is going on for them, let alone what might be going on for somebody else. But it's actually not difficult. It's inbuilt in us. And when we label and articulate what is going on for us, paradoxically perhaps, but absolutely systematically, it tones down almost the evaluative or judgmental nature of what is going on for ourselves or other people. So how to of becoming less judgmental? Daring to ask about what is actually going on or speaking to, disclosing to what has been going on for me today in my difficult day. And that accelerates the decompression process. And that hopefully is the equivalent of the drive home with the Michael Bublé playlist, not the podcast in my case, <laughs> to decompress. Uh, nice. I think it's, yeah, uh, this is fascinating because the other side of the ledger is almost how aware must those around the workers be in relation to that individual's work when they've delivered it virtually and there hasn't been that decompression, there hasn't been, you know, there hasn't been the jog, there hasn't been the walk to the car, there hasn't been the ride on the train, it's, there hasn't been the music, there hasn't been anything. And I think it's, there's almost a societal case here just to lead with a little bit more compassion and care and questioning and, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's asking the questions and, not assuming you know the answers or no, you know, it's, it's, it's what I'd call true listening capabilities. You know, how was your day? Then shut up and like, you know, understand if they don't want to talk about it, fine. If they do want to talk about it, listen, don't judge, go in. And again, you just, it's the, it comes down to the right question. And if it's done with care and compassion, then you're breaking that circuit because as we think about you know, where this push to virtual work goes and where it ends, it's all going to come down to how we interact with it. Mm. The technology will be, will be what the technology will be and the decisions leaders make about the technology will be what they make. But if we 
can't interact with it in a way that at least doesn't maintain our existing productivity, but hopefully increases it and then makes us, you know, happier in the workplace, you know, happier people are more productive, blah, blah, blah. You know, if, 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 if I, I fear if organizations go down the path of chasing the PL, chasing automation, chasing all of these things, they, they're really going to miss the boat. So That's just the it? technical detail. That's just operational yeah. stuff. All of this is Correct. below the level of why and where to and strategy, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And again, and th- this is why this conversation is great. Like, you know, we're talking strategy, we're talking communications, we're talking psychology, like the three are really coming together on this one here. And it's interesting. It's It feels like, you know, for the last, I don't know how many years, you know, when you used to play, you know, Second Life and SimCity and now Animal Crossing, it's like all these things are training us for this moment where it's like, okay... This is now actually not going to become a game. This is going to become your livelihood. This is going to become your work relationship. This is going to become your career. And this is a very different thing. Mm. Can I, can I jump in? No. I was just going to say, do you think that if we could use avatars rather than ourselves, that we could have a distance between ourselves that would help reduce some of this fatigue or would it just create a lack of authenticity? I think we all know how to do this. I think over the last 50 odd years or maybe 70 odd years, we've moved away from almost a recognition of what we need because of all this operational, logistical acceleration. And this is now the time where the organizations that for decades have been doing excellently well, have been doing excellently well because they got their serendipitously their people issues and their communication issues right. And they got the purpose of the organization right. Not necessarily by putting lots of value images on into the lobby, but because people bought into the purpose bought into something that was bigger. People were allowed to be themselves and be authentic and people were allowed to be seen and be human. So I think those organizations have always focused on paying attention to each other and have planned for difficulty more so than planned for efficiency, planned for complexity, Mm. um, and have created slack in their resourcing and also their, you know, their, almost their, uh, people management so that they were prepared for future issues. And now now we're finally here with the pandemic. We've, we're finally at the completely broken open where every organization now has to be a resilient organization that has to be prepared for operating in the face of volatile, uncertain, complex ambiguity. Duh, we finally arrived. Mm. And these organizations are organizations where authentic conversations full of care and curiosity and constructive criticism are the norm. And that's now becoming the normal for normal organizations. And I have a cunning plan. And, and um, my, our youngest at home always used to say, I have a very good idea. And I'm going to propose to you what I think is a very good idea. But you are, you're the judge of that. <laughs> what we need in this trend to go virtual is 
training in being human, training in being real human beings that acknowledge the need of real human beings. So I want the CEOs to have being human training. I want mm. me to have more training in being human. And I might want to facilitate training for you. And then I want you to facilitate where I am not fully rounded human because you see more of where I am not fully human when I mm. still have a filter than I do. So that's why mindfulness is a team sport. Yeah. And that's what we're finding is the next generation of development. So, so I'm going to ask, get, a, yeah. so ask Go a question here, Yusuf, because, you know, I believe everything you said. I, I, you know, I'm fully bought into that. Um, but if I look at my life and my history, it took me going through the 2008 financial crisis and having a number of things happen in my life that ended up in 2010, me selling everything I owned and going to Cranfield. Uh, did my MBA and really through that first term, the the MBA just kind of, they say, leave your baggage at the door. I think I was probably holding my baggage very, very firmly with two hands. And it pulled, you know, by, by Christmas, I'd felt, you know, I thought I was putting myself together, but it took me probably until the end of the second term to really start putting myself back together and having left a lot of that baggage that I'd accumulated over the first 30 plus years of my life together uh, to, to leave that behind. And since then I've worked, I've, I've had the, the foundations to embrace things like mindfulness and stoicism and, and a lot more self-awareness of the fact that, yes, I'm always going to have uh, faults. I'm always going to have things that I can improve upon but actually being able to recognize them and not and have a recognize them with a little bit of kindness and go, okay, so I did, I made a mistake there. What can I do to learn and get better from that? And so how do we bring, how do we help people bring that, the acceptance that that's something that we should all be working on? Because I think that's something that I've noticed a huge difference between different groups of people with different education levels or different acceptance to the ideas where mm. actually a lot, it takes quite a lot for people to want to become self-aware, I think. Yeah, and just to add on top of that, just to make it easier, um, is that <laughs> when we add the virtual layer of complexity to it, is it not a circumstance that what we should be teaching leaders and getting them to roll out in organisations is the framework and the infrastructure and the architecture for psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. So this virtual environment may give us an additional filter and, a, and, a, and an additional constraint, and it may give us an additional opportunity or impetus and motivation to really get it right this time, to really get our organizations to be aware, awake, real organizations this time round, if it doesn't take a pandemic what is it gonna take <laughs> yeah i'm not too sure i think the biggest thing that's kind of really landed with me in this conversation is the point around the emotional intelligence and linking that 
like, you know, tuning EQ into the conversations that you have virtually. Being aware that it's not necessarily being vulnerable. It might feel vulnerable. And, you know, how it, how you feel and how others see you might be very different. But if we're going to capture the efficiency of people working together through a virtual environment, there needs to be a stronger emotive give out and then reciprocity will start to kick in and then you'll start to get those bonds that you would get in the office, in the boardroom, on the work site, on the shop floor, whatever it happens to be. Because if the emotion is stripped out of that and we are performing, then we're never our real selves and we're not going to get that creative spark, that collaboration, all the good things that come from collections of people kind of, you know, marching towards a common goal. So that EQ into the conversation through a virtual medium is something I'm going to definitely take away and think about. I'm going to take away the idea of virtual resilience and what that looks and feels like. Because in our conversation, I've heard you articulate a number of ways in which we can become resilient in this new context. And I want to say I'm a glass half full girl, not a glass half empty. It's not necessary that we have to think about another type of resilience, another thing to worry about. But this is an opportunity for us to maybe hack resilience and maybe get it right because we really need to develop it in this virtual environment because all of us need an extra bit of resilience right now because it's a bit exhausting to be here right now and we're not yet used to it. So I'm motivated to to understand this a bit more further and I'm going to be thinking a bit more about this, gentlemen. Thank you. And I guess that my, my, my key takeaway really has been probably about labelling those emotions that you mentioned. Um, being able to just look back a little bit and not just labelling our own, but maybe labelling other people's as well on calls um, when we're in virtual is, Yeah, and maybe just as you said, being more curious rather than judgmental and making that, that conscious, trying to make even more of a conscious shift to, to really just be interested, not only in the outcome, but on the route that you're going to get there um, with the people. Uh, and mm, mm. I know you're not the biggest fan as Myers Briggs, but as somebody that's likely to, to, to jump, you know, to, to run ahead of the, you know, run ahead of the, the, the army and kind of get shot down in the first wave or not, if I haven't got the teams behind me, um, I'm likely to forget that they're there or not. And so really making sure that, that actually those guys are, uh, are what's important is, uh, is, is crucial for me, I think. And so really learning to be, yeah, to be more caring about every interaction, especially now is, is really important. Absolutely. I love this that. Is- I love that. Forgive me, Adam, for jumping in because I think it's so worth repeating. Matt, what you've just said, being interested in the process, being interested in the path might be a path that's filled with opportunities. And that focus, shifting our focus away from the outcome, but for being interested in the process might be where the biggest opportunity is in going virtual. Thank you. Mm, Nice. Thank you. The strategy behind going virtual. 
This is great. And I'll see you all on Animal Crossing. And there's <laughs> Thor soon. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives and organisations across the globe. Dr. Yuta Tobias Mortlock is a social psychologist who researches and advises on how to help people at work be and do well. Dr. Matt Wilkinson is a marketing strategist and educator who helps life science and tech companies bring disruptive products and brands to market. If you're interested in the presenter's work or wish to sign up for their newsletters, go to thestrategybehind.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Santiago Castello. Music is composed by Judson Lee. And to find more episodes, visit thestrategybehind.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>